Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Very good, and you? I'm well. Happy Chinese New Year, of course. Oh, thank you very much. Are you having a good time with family? Yes, I have. So I am talking to Marcus Swampo, CEO and co-founder of BitX. And BitX is a very interesting company because it is doing something that a lot of people may, may know in the US and Europe, which is called Bitcoin and blockchain. But before that, Marcus, I know you through my wife because you are both classmates in INSEAD and that also together with a couple of very well-known founders in the space. But I want to get to know a little bit about you and your career. How do you get started in banking? Thanks, Bernard. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to try and make a bit of a long story short. I started off my banking career actually in consumer banking with Morgan Stanley in London, then went and worked in a PE fund for a while in fundraising, growth capital investing, did the MBA route. As you said, I did my MBA at INSEAD in Singapore and in France, and then did the opposite of what a lot of people that go to business school do. And instead of going from banking to PE, I went from PE to banking, predominantly driven by the opportunity to work on a lot of deal flow in Southeast Asia. So at the time, there was a ton of banking activity coming out of especially Indonesia, Malaysia. And as I loved emerging markets, it's something I wanted to get involved in. That's the story of how I got to work eventually for Standard Chartered in, in Singapore. Subsequently, you moved from traditional banking to startup and creating BIDEX. What are the kind of interesting career lessons you have learned from your career so far? When I moved from banking to starting BIDEX, it wasn't a, a direct move where I already decided what I wanted to do. I just knew from having worked in tech and, and coded when I was really young, that it's something that I eventually was going to do at some stage. So I just quit my job with no plan and decided to move to Silicon Valley. So I lived there for a couple of months and decided to figure out what I wanted to do. And it was there that I came across you know, Bitcoin and blockchain. But I think something that I learned from that, that time was I had the opportunity to take, for example, a sabbatical. And I know a lot of people that work in banking say, oh, let me try something out for three months or try something out on the side. And I think that was very valuable was that I totally quit my job, moved and went all in on this thing. Because if it wasn't for that, I might have gone back to banking a month in or two months in or even five months in. So I think burning your bridges and really going all in uh, for a startup is, is really important. Obviously, I'm a first time entrepreneur, so I'm still learning a lot from other people. And it's you know hard for me to give advice to others. But something that I also you know notice it's you know, building a startup is a lot harder than it seems from the outside. As as you would know, it seems very glamorous and fun from the outside, but it's exceptionally hard work. And I'm working now just as hard, if not harder than I did in investment banking. Of course, having a really, really enjoying it, having an absolute ball doing this, but it's very hard work and it takes a lot of a, a big toll on many uh, parts of your life. But I think, you know, one other thing that I found also was that you have to trust your gut in this stuff as well. There's, especially in the fintech space, there's a lot of advisors and people trying to help and so on and often with good intentions. But, you know, many people, you know, in this space haven't actually worked in startups. They, they worked in big banks. 
markets and within consumer banking, investment banking. And I see a lot of founders that started with me actually, you know, go the wrong, down the wrong track because they spend too much time listening to the advice of people that haven't actually been in their shoes. Of course, if it was other startup founders or operating partners of, of, of venture funds that have been there, done that before, that's exceptionally useful especially in the fintech space. But I think, you know, trusting your gut has worked well for us so far and I've seen this works well for other founders as well. Maybe one last thing, if I can add something which is peculiar to our industry, is that the really, really surprised at how media covers topics and, and in the case of Bitcoin and blockchain, how, how they distort many of the facts, right? So I'm always up for a good argument. There's a lot of things we can talk about why Bitcoin, you know, can and cannot work or might not work. The level of misreporting I've seen in this industry of with, you know, factual things are just totally misstated in the media or, you know, clickbait is created to get people to get a certain idea of cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. It's just absolutely astounded me. Frankly, it scared me a lot in terms of you know, other content that I consume, whether it's reading about the Middle East or US politics or the tech industry broadly, I'm very careful what I believe when I read that. So you're more skeptical in terms of how you look at this information. But I think the most interesting reason why I got you here is because of Bitcoin and blockchain. And I think you're probably one of the few people who are operating in this industry in Asia. Before we start talking about BitX, can you give an introduction to the concept of Bitcoin and blockchain on a high level to the audience? Sure, Bernard. I'm going to try and summarize five-hour conversation into you know 50 <laughs> seconds. Look, at a very and, and at the sake of over, slightly oversimplifying it here, you know, at a very core level, until a few years ago, if I wanted to move any form of digital ownership, so something that's online or on a computer from one person to another person, there was always a risk that I could copy, paste, and send it to more than one person, right? So I could not send something directly to you without there being some intermediary to make sure that I don't cheat and just copy, paste. And this cheating, in, in some sense, referred to the double spend, which, and, and, and the way the world's kind of dealt with this up until now is that some kind of intermediary will make sure that that doesn't happen. So that's a function that many banks play, uh, credit card companies, of course, they play many other functions as well. But one of their core functions is just moving digital ownership from one party to another party, but of course, if they do this, they're going to charge a fee. And, and depending on the complexity of the transaction, it might take a lot of time. So, you know, between two customers of the same bank, it's quite easy. Different banks are harder, different countries, different currencies, it becomes harder and harder and slower and more expensive. And what Bitcoin really did for the first time is bring to the world a technology where I can send a digital asset, any form of digital ownership, directly from one person to another person without the need of an intermediary. And that is quite revolutionary. So, And, and, and there's a lot of use cases. So, so the technology that underpins is popularly referred to as the blockchain, where you can move ownership of a domain, ownership of a share, ownership of you know, any insurance contract and so on anything that you have online. Bitcoin is, is seen as one of the use cases of, of this blockchain, and that is a cryptocurrency. So this technology has its own currency. I think that broadly summarizes it. We'll, we'll maybe go in depth a little bit when we talk about what some of the banks and so on are doing in this space and, and distinguish between different types of blockchains and cryptocurrencies. But I think that should cover the high level concept. I can add a little bit to it because I've actually read the Bitcoin paper. As a theoretical physicist, I've actually studied the blockchain protocol and it's a very, very sound and encryption system. It, although it's invented by a very mysterious inventor by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto, but I think there's a lot of protocols that have actually developed around the blockchain and it's not just, Bitcoin is only a 
one currency, right? There are many, many different currencies that are actually made out of the blockchain. You can do contracts through blockchain as well. Different uh, cryptocurrencies on different blockchains, not all on the same Bitcoin blockchain. I, I think just maybe, you know, in terms of that paper, uh, you know, uh, an important point to highlight there is, you know, you mentioned no one knows who the Satoshi Nakimoto is, but I think a common misconception in our industry is that someone pulled this whole concept out of thin air. But of course, having read the paper, you know that, you know, just like any good academic paper, there was a lot of references done to groundbreaking work that was done in terms of maths, cryptography, and so on that he referred to. So so he was really just building on the shoulders of giants and, and work that had been done over the past two decades and just managed to pull that all together. If Satoshi didn't invent cryptocurrency or, or blockchain, I'm sure someone else would have in the same time period. Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon called the blockchain an operating system instead of just a particular thing to move currency. Coming back, what inspired you to start BitX? As I mentioned, I, I was living in, in, in Palo Alto and really just at, was in a very fortunate position to have a completely open mind about what I wanted to do with my life and, and what kind of business I wanted to start. And then I came across the concept of Bitcoin and blockchain through talks I watched from the, the Draper family. And I think just like many people that are exposed to it for the first time, you have this realization that, wow, this is, you know, this could change an entire industry. It could set off a whole new wave of innovation. So I wanted to be part of that and, and, and see, you know, what could I build to, to make it easier for people to understand Bitcoin blockchain, have access to it and so on. And coming from emerging markets, I also thought that that a lot of the value of this, you know, quote unquote, new payment or financial system is probably going to be more applicable in emerging markets than in developed markets. I met with a couple of my co-founders and then we set out to build Bitex, which focuses on on emerging markets. And what's the mission and vision for Bitex then? Something that we don't always articulate, but really for us, the end game is you know, we want to make money frictionless and, and universally accessible. We think that money will be like the internet or like email or like Skype within the next 10 or 20 years. Everyone will be able to use it for free very quickly. It will just be, an, you know, a really good user experience. Nothing like banking that we see today. So for us, you know, Bitcoin is a way to get to that end goal. Now, it might not be the only way. We are betting quite heavily on that Bitcoin is, you know, the best way to build this frictionless global financial platform. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, we're not open to anything else. In the end, that's really from a consumer point of view. I mean, for the consumer, it shouldn't matter whether it's Bitcoin or, you know, any other technology. All, all they must know is that money has now become so easy to use, just like everything else that I use, and it's free. And that's in the long term what, we, what we're trying to, to build. I know that BitX started with a consumer app in both iOS and Android. How does the BitX app work? So the BitX app is really just a mobile-first experience for our users. Given we're in emerging markets, most of our, our users are actually on mobile. And obviously, where it's very different from the US, most of them are on Android. Not on iOS. What the app does, and I almost don't want to call it an app because it's the main our main product. It's not you know an addition to something else. But it really makes it easy for people to buy and sell Bitcoin, to send Bitcoin to anyone in the world by email or text, to buy things online. They can send Bitcoin directly, or they can send it where Bitcoin works in the background. So I can send you know one currency, let's say ring it to rupiah, and it can switch through Bitcoin, or I can make a payment in rand, and it switches in the background through Bitcoin. So as a user, I might not even need to know that Bitcoin was involved in the transaction. And then in terms of user experience, we, we have a very elegant onboarding process and we've incorporated things like KYC and a lot of customer identification and security things in, in our app very elegantly. So, you know, in the end, it just makes it really easy to use Bitcoin and, and by extension, easy to use money.
Mm, just to know KYC is know your customer. So I tr- thought you just help my audience to understand it. Let me understand this. If let's say you do remittance, for example, which is clearly a big problem in a place like Southeast Asia, transferring money safe between uh, rupiah to peso will be, becomes very easy because of the blockchain protocol that you have. So is that one of the touch points that you actually use with this app as well? Funnily enough, it is not something that we focus on. I think the popular, uh, in terms of consumer remittances, so the popular narrative for a lot of people is, oh, wow, Bitcoin is going to solve remittances. Now, also, you know, without going into a very long lecture here about, you know, why remittances work and, or, or not work, really, the issue with remittances, certainly consumer remittances, is distribution and customer acquisition cost. Bitcoin makes remittances a little bit faster, a little bit cheaper, but but it doesn't take away that you have to still acquire these users and it's very expensive. And of course, when you go into that space, you're competing with the likes of TransferWise and MoneyGram and about a gazillion other consumer remittance startups. So for that reason, I'm actually quite skeptical in the short run, short to medium run, of building a consumer app using Bitcoin. I think in the long run, it makes sense. If everyone uses Bitcoin and you don't have to convert between currencies and Bitcoin, I think there's some interesting opportunities on the B2B side, which we're also exploring because we have open APIs for our platform. So if a you know a TransferWise or a Western Union wanted to tap into that liquidity, but they already have their customers acquired and, and you know, a, a way for those people to cash in and cash out, then there's some interesting opportunities. But I guess, you know, to summarize, even though some of our customers use our app, to send money across borders. We don't actively try and acquire these customers because the economics don't make sense. We tend to focus more on the e-commerce side of it, but of course people are free to use it for whatever they do. So some of these e-commerce use cases we then convert into a a remittance use case. So who are the actual customers for BDEX? The BDEX customers, I'd say it's very similar to to the type of Bitcoin customers you find in the US and and in Europe and certainly in other China and so on. So in the industry, predominantly the most people still use Bitcoin to speculate on the price. So these are traders that also trade in other commodities and instruments. You also within that have a big category of people that believe that the price of Bitcoin will go up in a, for a very long time. This is because Bitcoin is to some extent modeled the same as gold. It's Some people call it a digital version of gold. And so a lot of people buy and hold on this. So, so I'd say in the end, industry, I mean, we, I don't think anyone has exact numbers, but I'd guess that at least 80% of the Bitcoin users globally use it for these use cases. And of course, when you're looking at that type of demographic or, or the people that would do that, that would be, you know, more disposable AI, disposable income kind of users. When you look at the other 10 to 20%, there you start getting some interesting other things. You start seeing the remittance use case, you start seeing something that, you know, e-commerce. So something we, we very focused on at the moment is building use cases and, and examining use cases around cross-border e- e-commerce in particular. So this is things where people either don't have a credit card and want to shop online or they have a credit card, but because of the country they live in, that credit card gets rejected because of the fraud risk associated with it. And and this has happened to me as well. When I'm purchasing goods from the US, my credit card gets rejected and then I immediately pay with Bitcoin and then the transaction gets concluded. For this, a lot of the transactions would be outbound from emerging markets into developed markets. And that's you know, why we, you know, quite fortunate to be in these markets, because I think we can see a lot of these use cases come out. There's a few smaller ones, but I'd say, you know, e-commerce, cross-border e-commerce and remittances is is probably the bulk of, of that, you know, that last bucket. So how does the business model then work for BitDEX in these cases? Then? So in terms of trading and, and people just holding Bitcoin, we collect a trading fee. So Bitcoin is just really a platform where people can meet each other and, and buy and sell this Bitcoin, whether in the app or we also have like a trading dashboard. So we make very tiny transactions 
transaction fees. And also when people consummate uh, transactions, when they buy something online and they send the Bitcoin or they could, you know, they buy Bitcoin to convert it from their local currency into Bitcoin, we take some small fees there. In terms of people using our APIs, also, I mean, we, we've integrated Bitcoin acceptance to some payment platforms. So for example, in South Africa, we have over 10,000 merchants that accepted there. We're about to do similar things in Indonesia and Malaysia. And so also on those transactions, we take a tiny transaction fees. Which comes to my next question. What's the footprint for BitX across Southeast Asia? I mean, which countries do you operate in? So officially, we are currently active in Indonesia and Malaysia. And we will be announcing in the next few short weeks some more Southeast Asian countries where we already have been testing uh, various products, but we haven't officially announced it. But you'll be the first to know. Okay. One interesting thing that I wanted to ask you is you have done fundraising from a couple of very interesting companies, uh, Naspers, because they are known for their investments in Tencent, aka the company behind WeChat, Ventura Capital, which is owned by the Lippo Group, and Barry Sibbett, which is the founder of Second Market. Can you talk a little bit about the story of how you managed to raise funds from these investors? Sure. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm very happy that you know the Naspers Group because a lot of investors, I think, in the US or in the US aren't aware of who Naspers is. And and of course, it's one of the biggest tech companies in the world and arguably the largest and most successful emerging market tech investor. I think when we started, we, you know, we, we, we went straight to Silicon Valley for our seed round. We got some money from you know, Silicon Valley, a bit from New York and, and from London. Um, and the idea was always to kind of raise money from there. But then as our business model started developing and we, and we started seeing a lot of the use cases that we've just spoken about now, someone like Naspers just became a, a really natural choice for us. You know, and, and so we engaged with them and, and it became quite obvious that if, if you look at all the potential use cases of, of Bitcoin or, or, or cryptocurrency you know, around payments, uh, e-commerce, remittance and emerging markets, then you know, Naspers either own or you know, have significant influence on most successful companies in these spaces in emerging markets. So I almost want to say, you know, it was a no-brainer. In terms of value-add partners, you know, they can do 100 times more than, a, you know, San Francisco VC can, can do for me with, you know, with all due respect for our, you know, current business model. And they've been fantastic investors and, and partners so far. Ventura was also important for us because when we moved into this market, we, we realized Naspers is a global investment firm. They have a very strong footprint in many markets, but we also, because we have a very strong Southeast Asia focus, we wanted a, a, a very reputable fund in Southeast Asia to also be involved. As you also know, it's a very relationship-driven market and environment in Southeast Asia. And so having people on the ground with these relationships and market knowledge was really important. And I know some of the known some of the partners of Ventura Capital for quite a while. And yeah, we were very excited to bring the Ventura guys on board also November last year. With all the fundraise, so you're just figuring out how to break into the different geographies and also trying to get the product right. Is that how I understand where you are now? Yes, I think there's the first part of what we do is really for the areas where there's product market fit, like people buying and selling Bitcoin or wanting to store their Bitcoin really, you know, safely. We're making sure that we offer the best product for that market. And these markets are growing very, very fast. But the second part, which you alluded to, is exploring use cases and how else can we can we get people to use Bitcoin? And in particular, where can Bitcoin solve pain points or problems that a traditional payment method cannot? I don't want to compete with, you know, something like a Visa or uh, a TransferWise. I want Bitcoin to give a user something that another payment cannot. So I think it's twofold, you know, service the existing product market fit areas really well and really proactively drive these new use cases. Of course, these might be in different countries, multiple countries. So we, as we're doing this, we're also expanding our geographic footprint. And also you have the B2B component that actually does the APIs for even traditional banks might be able to use for the Bitcoin and blockchain technology as well through yes. BitX as well. 
Yeah, so our platform runs through open APIs and there are actually a bunch of companies that already use them. It's funny that you should mention banks because I'm not sure if you're aware, but our company, before we started, we were actually a B2B company called Switchless and we built the first fully integrated Bitcoin system for a major multinational bank which was an internal pilot for Africa's largest bank. So we spend a lot of time working with the banks on Bitcoin, blockchain technology, all of this stuff. At the moment, blockchain is a bit the flavor of the, the week with a, with a lot of banks, but we suspect a lot of them are going to come back to wanting to look more deeply into Bitcoin. And, you know, that is where we will really start pushing the B2B side or the AP is a bit more but at the moment it's the market's a little bit immature for that which comes to the interesting part of this conversation is to talk a little bit about the bitcoin blockchain industry in asia what are the current trends you have observed about bitcoin adoption and blockchain in asia i guess to some extent it's important to distinguish between what is bitcoin and, and blockchain and once again just for the sake of oversimplifying i think when people talk about bitcoin they talk about a cryptocurrency like bitcoin that runs off a public blockchain like the bitcoin blockchain and when people refer to blockchain they typically refer to some kind of private blockchain. So that would be someone else creating a blockchain to move up other types of assets. So this could be a bunch of banks getting together and doing it. It could be some telcos or remittance companies and so on. So when we look at the Bitcoin, you know, the cryptocurrency market in Asia, if we look at the three broad areas in Asia, I mean, in China, it is the, the biggest Bitcoin market in the world in terms of people trading, buying, selling in Bitcoin. I think that's a, you know, a, a podcast in itself about what's happening in Bitcoin in China, but it really is the driver. Most of the Bitcoin mining companies are there and so on. So that's a you know, that's, that's very positive. In terms of uh, Southeast Asia and India, I would say that it's adoption is lagging significantly behind developed markets, but that's because the use cases that for initially formed the developed markets, as I explained, you know, trading and, you know, a store of wealth as a use case. This is for people with a lot of disposable income and so on. So you get that in the emerging markets, but it's not, you don't have the same demographic and it's not as big. We are starting to see a lot of the real quote-unquote you know use cases come out in emerging markets these cross-border payments or local payments and so on and so we suspect that emerging markets will be a lot bigger than developed markets in terms of bitcoin adoption but at the moment it's it's still lagging a little bit southeast asia i would say is is significantly ahead of india from what we can see in terms of adoption and also ahead of of africa but i think the trend is similar to many other technologies where we find you know southeast asia a little bit ahead of some parts of latin america and africa and india I think in terms of blockchain, we can maybe talk later about what some of the banks and, and people are doing in terms of blockchain. I, it seems that the that the banks here are also exploring. I mean, some of the some of the like, for example, Singaporean banks are, are, are doing some quite advanced stuff in that. They've been all over it for a very long time. I'd say in some other countries in Southeast Asia, the the blockchain bug hasn't quite bitten yet, so they still quite skeptic, not really putting a lot of resource into it. But I suspect over the next you know 12 to 18 months that's that's going to change quite significantly i know you have written some articles on taking bitcoin mainstream and even talking about trends beyond the blockchain so one one question i do have for you is what are the essential conditions that need to happen in order to take bitcoin and blockchain mainstream for something like bitcoin the cryptocurrency you know the biggest hurdle at the moment is regulation there's not a lot of clarity in terms of how it should be regulated many companies like ours want it to be regulated but also not in such an overburden overburdened some way that it stops you from being able to innovate and you know we're all small startups and have limited funding to build these businesses initially along with that is the is the adoption of the cryptocurrency right so are there enough critical pain points for for people to really want to use bitcoin either directly or indirectly through 
you know, using Bitcoin as a rails. You know, a lot of Bitcoin companies are just waiting for something to happen. We are very proactively driving those things. And, and I, evidence suggests that, yes, we can drive these use cases and there are some interesting things there. So we, we're quite optimistic about that. So I think in terms of adoption and regulation on the Bitcoin side, the, the blockchain one is a little bit more interesting because... Uh, once again, this is, you know, also a very, you know, long topic. So we won't go into all the detail here. But essentially, when you look at blockchain, uh, blockchain is just like a database. So when a bunch of banks or companies want to get together and use a blockchain, it just means that they want to use a database that all of them can see at the same time. So it's a shared database to really, really oversimplified and my apologies to all the diehard Bitcoin and blockchain fans around the world. But at its core, what it means is that different people have to accept the same standard, right? So the benefits of using a blockchain accrues at an industry level, not at a firm level, which means a lot of companies in the same industry have to accept the same standard or blockchain. And the challenge there is basically just human incentives, right? Like are are people going to be able to coordinate? Can they work together? Can they agree on something? Are the bank senior management incentivized enough to actually replace some of the infrastructure with an infrastructure that their competitors are using also. So I think the challenge there is going to be very, very much, not so much on the regulatory and the and the usage side, but more on the, you know, on the human side. Can you coordinate? Can you convince people to do it? And I, and I, and I honestly think those challenges are a lot bigger than than the regulatory and use case challenges of, of Bitcoin, the currency. I've been following the Bitcoin and blockchain developments in the US and I've been hearing this whole conversation about the technology challenges, which is something about expanding the blockchain size and issues about whether how the Bitcoin experiment have been evolved. Yes. From your viewpoint now in Asia, or maybe even because you can move money anywhere, right? The challenge is it more stronger in terms of technology or in terms of the regulation. I, I would still say regulation. You know, I, I and on purpose didn't actually talk about technology there because we don't really see it as a major risk. Despite a lot of this talk about block size debate and a lot of things that can potentially go wrong and 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 so on. I mean, if you've seen one of those articles. You know, Bitcoin has died for the 89th time. You know, every week there's something about where everyone thinks it's dead from a technology perspective or a regulatory perspective. And, and somehow Bitcoin seems to just push through these challenges. So the technological challenges, I don't want to say it's not a risk at all, but I, I see it as a lesser risk. The regulatory ones are still are still challenging also because emerging markets are quite unique. And from what I, I've also noticed is one of the things that is a particular concern for governments and emerging markets is capital controls, which a lot of developed countries don't have. And that's a particular challenge. It's quite a difficult one to solve. So I, I would still say that that is quite an important and big challenge to all of us. So in the US, the banks have started talking about their blockchain strategy. I always like to make this joke, like in 2012, we talked about the mobile strategy. Now last year was the IoT strategy. So now the banks have their own version of the blockchain strategy. In the US, there is a consortium called the R3 Consortium, which is basically focused on the blockchain technology. And we have a lot of banks partaking i know there are a couple of banks one of them i think is credit suisse are the asian banks doing the same are, are they actually joining the r3 consortium and how do they view the blockchain strategy which is different from where you come from you know a lot of this alludes to what i was talking about you you get some firm level oh, sorry industry level benefits by collaborating and, and, and using the same infrastructure. Now, when I said it's difficult to coordinate, I would say that there's probably two exceptions. In most cases, this coordination at such a big scale doesn't work. I'd say the two exceptions are one, if, if it's enforced, a standard is enforced by a government. So if the EU says, or the UK government says, hey, all banks have to use this blockchain, then everyone will use it. The other way would be to form a type of consortium like R3 has done and really incentivize the banks to work together through 
from what I understand, I don't know if this is how the ownership structure works, but I suspect that it's almost like a co-op where the banks will get some benefit of the you know equity upside. So more like a Visa or MasterCard consortium. So I think out of all the initiatives, and, and just remember, there's a lot of other blockchain initiatives that are very similar from many other companies. So I would say R3 out of everything I've looked at seem to be the one that has the highest likelihood of success. I know some of the founders and they put together a really strong team. Incidentally, Mike Hearn that you mentioned earlier about that wrote about the, the issues with Bitcoin has also joined the R3 consortium. Having said that, I still think it's going to be very, very challenging and it's going to take a very long time for them to get anything done there but you know if anyone can do it they can in terms of asian banks i'm not aware of which asian banks are involved in it i understand they have 42 banks at the moment i am sure there is one one or two asian banks in there i also believe that that number is going to not stop there and accelerate quite a bit so i would not be surprised also in the next 12 to 18 months if we've got you know quite a few asian banks in there i mean you also have a situation where a bank itself can also run on their own blockchain like for example goldman sachs have actually done something like that would you see a fragmentation of blockchains happening or would you see a more consolidated like what the R3 is doing? I suspect it will be more consolidated. As I mentioned, there might be some reasons why you want to run your own blockchain or different blockchains within an uh, institution, different divisions. But but as I mentioned, the, you know, the most of the benefits from a blockchain comes from the fact that it's a shared database, which means you share it with other people. So So once again, coming down to this concept of having industry-wide benefits. So I suspect if it's going to be valuable it will have to be in, in scenarios where a really a significant amount of a certain industry decide to ad adopt the blockchain and also you know it's as in with r3 but you know also a, a big a important question to ask in in those instances and, and and many other instances is is a blockchain the best technology to to use to solve that particular problem so you know someone said to me oh you know in country x why you know why don't you know farm Five banks get together and use the blockchain to build their own interclear interbank settlement system so they don't have to use SWIFT or USD or whatever. And we say, but look, they could have done that 20 years ago, 10 years ago. They just chose not to do it for whatever reason. Either they couldn't coordinate or didn't want to coordinate or so on. But they could have just used a normal database to do it. So while there are some benefits of using a blockchain, I think it's important to distinguish between what is really just people working together to build a common standard or a system and what is really something that blockchain technology makes different from you know people just working together to build something like that because it's in in, in more more cases than not a, a normal database or you know a very good secure database will the same thing a blockchain can if not better mm -hmm. yeah probably should just add from the technological perspective the blockchain is a distributed ledger that's actually transparent and people can see what are the transactions involved on that, which is one of the clear use cases or examples that has been sort of championed by a lot of Bitcoin and blockchain advocates that why it is important to, to have this piece of technology. But coming back, is there a space between the Bitcoin blockchain startups like yourself and banks where they can actually collaborate, given that there is the consortiums farming yep. and also you know banks are also thinking maybe i should just build my own blockchain is there really a space there that allow you all to collaborate of course on the blockchain side they will have to collaborate otherwise there's no way for them to get the benefits of that on the bitcoin side and maybe broader even fintech i think they you know our, our view is yes there is actually a lot of uh, value to get from collaborating especially between financial institutions bitcoin companies and regulators if you look at a lot of bitcoin companies and and the industry and also fintech it's a little bit of arrogance about, you know, we know how to do things different. You guys don't know anything. We're going to show you how. 
But of course, building financial products is not Mickey Mouse. So I think there's a lot to learn from people who've, who've been in the in the banking industry for a long time. Uh, remittances is a good example, right? A lot of banks have looked at, at this ad nauseum. They understand that the problem is customer acquisition, not technology. And if some of the smaller fintech or Bitcoin companies, you know, took the time to learn from, you know, some of the banks on this front, they might build their business very different or not build it at all. And likewise with regulation and learning. I think... I think so definitely there is room for collaboration. What type of that collaboration that is, I think, is debatable. You know, you don't want to get too stuck into working with banks where they slow you down or you get the wrong advice because, you know, people aren't used to working in a startup environment and so on. So I think it's, you know, se- se- selective collaboration, if I can call it that, is definitely beneficial. I hear you talk about how is Asia compared to US and Europe earlier in terms of the blockchain and Bitcoin adoption. So how do you see... Asia moving in the Bitcoin and blockchain, at least in the next, in the near future. Do you think that there will be some variation that how the technology and the regulation will move that will make it very different from how the use cases in the developed markets like the US and Europe will be? It's a very good question. I would say that in terms of regulation, we would probably find the Asian markets moving in line with things that are happening in the US and, and potentially the UK, even Singapore. I think there'll be a bit of a lag in terms of that. And I, and I don't think, I can't see anyone really doing things completely different from those countries, maybe a little bit catered for local market conditions and so on. We, I think it will be very different is in terms of the how it actually, the, the, the industry evolves. So as I mentioned earlier, things like Bitcoin can potentially solve a lot of payment problems or, or, or pains that people in emerging markets have that people in developed markets don't have. So you will find that the technology might and the applications might grow a lot faster. And also you will also find that a lot of institutions will, will potentially experiment with it uh, a lot easier. I think there is certainly from the experience we've had, there seems to be a more openness to, to experiment with new technology, to try new things both at the consumer and the and the institutional level. So I think the regulation will be similar, but the adoption and the you know the experimentation and so on is likely to move a little bit faster. And the killer app is going to be different, I guess, from what you're telling me. More than likely, it would be yes. Yeah. So on the Mark- side for sure. On the blockchain side, it could be similar, but definitely on the Bitcoin side, I think it'll be very different. I'm pretty sure I will definitely have to get you back sometime to talk about those topics that might be stretching to another two to three podcasts but yes Mark- and the industry changes so quickly if we speak in three months time i might be telling you something completely different so marcus help my audience how do they find you well if if anyone's uh, looking for me they can find me on twitter at marcus swanapool and also on on, on LinkedIn, of course, and they can find Bitex at bitex.co or in the App Store uh, on iOS or Android. You can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And of course, feel free to drop us online and tweet to Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E-A-S-I-A. So once again, Marcus, thank you for coming on the show and I learned a lot about Bitcoin and blockchain in Asia. Thanks, Bernard. It's been, it's been a great... Great privilege to be on your show and all the best for 2016 Year of the Monkey. Yeah.